Robinhood is a, is a firm that trades stocks, but they don't have a seat on the exchange. They have to go to someone else to trade their stocks. Um, right now, they're going to Citadel, which is a hedge fund. Uh, and Citadel is buying and selling for them. And sometimes they're holding, as a market maker, a bunch of stuff. They might own a bunch of ETF. And if you're in Robinhood and you go to buy ETF, you may not be buying it on the exchange. You might be buying it directly from Citadel. And you don't know what the spread on that was. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. And last hour was quite exciting for lots of technical reasons. Um, thank you for listening and for staying listening for half an hour to nothing. Uh, that is kind of the definition of waiting with bated breath. All right, so the Personal Wealth Coach uh, is the name of this radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Uh, just because it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC thinks that the firm is in any way good or bad or ugly or pretty or any other implication that might be coming from being registered any more than the uh, DMV gives you some kind of a, a pat of approval on your head when you go and um, renew your license. They generally don't pat people on the head. It's condescending. The SEC doesn't either. Um, we can't give investment advice on the air because we got to know our clients. We got to have an agreement to have privacy and all that stuff. Can't do that on the air. Um, so uh, the information that we are going to give you is from places we deem to be reliable. Um, you used deemed. I did. I deemed it. You deemed. You uh, deemed. We deem it to be reliable, but we're certainly not going to guarantee any of the data that we're getting from third parties. But we'll tell you where we got it if you want to complain to them. Uh, we are getting from places that are not uh, on the fringe, uh, though um, some people might consider them if they're on the fringe. Uh, let's see here. We don't pay for this radio program. Maybe uh, somebody should start buying more advertising and the studio will be able to keep us on the air. Uh, they don't pay us to do it either. We do buy advertising for the program on the program, on the studio, and they do as well. And we buy at market rates. So I am confused, but that's all right. What are you confused about? Just go on, go on, go on. And um, that is our disclosures. So thank you all for your patience and for, wait, you may not all be doctors. So if you have patience, you may be practicing without a license. Just giving you some warnings. People, my mom told me to have patience my whole life. And then I found out I could go to jail for that. So no more patience for me. Um, Got it. Yeah. I'm going to get to Inquisitor John's question from earlier in the week. He had a question for us, and it, as is tradition, he took a digital picture of the analog paper version of the Wall Street Journal to email it to us and ask us a question. Um, the subject of his question is an article about the New York Stock Exchange making a mistake on opening and listing 2,824 securities. Those are stocks. Those are companies' ownership values um, with the wrong value on startup. 
So they started the market at the wrong value. A bunch of trades, not a huge number of trades, but a, a reasonably large number of trades for a short period of time hit because a lot of people at brokerage firms have, hey, if this stock ever goes below this number, I want to buy it. So a bunch of trades went off on those lower numbers and the New York Stock Exchange circuit breakers hit because uh, what, what, what are those? When a stock price moves above a certain amount or below a certain amount as a percentage in a day, there are uh, requirements that we slow down the trading. Because um, the idea is like if you have a mob of people in Walmart that are trying to buy something, if you make that an orderly environment, you get better decision making and less blood. <laughs> people don't get beat up. So in the market, the circuit breakers kick in at the same way that the security forces come in when people are beating each up over each other up over beanie babies. It, you, we need an orderly marketplace. Okay, so the circuit breakers all hit on these stocks because the numbers were all weird. How did that happen? And the trades went way off and the prices were swinging all over. And then the New York Stock Exchange said, oops, we used the wrong backup to bring those prices up for opening. So they're required to have backups and they were doing a test for an emergency. In the event of an emergency, would they be able to immediately go to their backups and uh, keep going as if nothing had happened? Well, they weren't. <laughs> they used the wrong backup. Uh, the circuit breakers kicked in. The good news is that the circuit breakers worked. The exchange went through and busted those trades. John's question is, what are busted trades and are the exchanges, New York Stock Exchange, etc., liable for these types of glitches? Their duty at the exchange is to protect the seller from their mistake. The buyer in this case didn't lose money even with a busted trade. They just didn't get the trade they expected. Uh, we were talking about the New York Stock Exchange accidentally in a test uh, for disaster recovery, accidentally starting a whole bunch of stock prices at the wrong numbers. They used the wrong backups and the backups were from a time when the stock prices were lower. Um, and you can actually probably forensically figure out which day they were using as their backup. If you just look back at what trades were busted at what price and how it started and all that good stuff. But to me, it's kind of irrelevant. irrelevant. They made a big mistake. And uh, a little over 4,000 trades occurred on these securities that they listed at the wrong price because of weirdness. So they busted the trade. And the question we had was, what does it mean when you bust a trade? That term is used throughout the trading of securities world, and it means different things at different scales. So at the New York Stock Exchange, when they bust a trade, they're doing it because their obligation is to protect harm from the sellers and prevent fraud to the buyers, Does that, if, if that makes sense. Their job is to make sure people don't cheat and buy from someone at the wrong price and that the person selling isn't lying about what they're selling. Their job is to keep the marketplace running smoothly. So when they bust a trade, they do take the liability for it. There may be lawsuits. Uh, somebody might sue them for making them not be able to buy at the price that was advertised for that day. 
Uh, it probably won't go anywhere, but it will cost some money to defend. Um, when they bust the trade, it's as if the trade didn't occur at the exchange level. There's a really good example of this on September 11th of 2001. The New York Stock Exchange was open for a good long period of time before the attack. It was closed for several weeks after the attack because they had to set up a new location and bring up all the backups and so on. This is what they were testing this last time around. All the trades that occurred on the morning of September 11th didn't happen. People bought things and people sold things. They were reversed. All of those trades were null. That's a busted trade. Some people may have, and you can put quotes around this, lost money on it and that they sold at a price that they couldn't get when they went to resell it again at another time, particularly right after the attack when the markets opened up. There was a bit of a, more than a bit of a drop. Um, so they were upset. But the reality is the marketplace has the obligation to remove trades that may have been done erroneously or in ways that would harm or damage either the buyer or the seller. So at a lower level, when you're a firm trading on the exchange, let's say somebody's got big fingers and they hit the zero button too many times when they were saying the number of shares or the number of dollars to buy or sell. You call up, you say, hey, I need to sell 10,000 shares of Microsoft. And they sell 100,000 shares of Microsoft. Um, well, they have to bust that trade. They go, oh, we sold too many. Usually they can bust it quickly enough that they can claw it back and, and, and they can take it out of reserves of a market maker or something. But sometimes they can't. Sometimes they just have to, if they sold the stock, the firm has to buy that stock back. If the price just went up, they've got to buy at a loss and give it to that client. If the price goes down, they can buy it at a lower price. So what happens to the gain they just made? They, they bought it at a lower price. They accepted the money from the client at a higher price. Where does that money go? Well, there's a couple of things that have to happen there. It depends on the firm, but the vast majority of firms are not allowed to touch that money like it's profit. They have to keep it in a segregated error account. And this is part of the concept that people talk about when they're talking about like a locksmith has to be bonded um, because they have the key to your house. So they have to buy or have monetary reserves for the damages if somebody breaks into their shop or if one of their employees breaks into your house. If they've got a bunch of keys with your address labels on them and someone breaks in and takes their keys, they're liable for the bonding amount. It's like liability insurance for all kinds of things. So at the firm level, not at the exchange level, the, the trading company has to eat the loss, but they also don't get to keep the gains. I mean, they can keep the gains to use against some busted trade loss in the future. So it's weird. And most people don't understand how often mistakes still happen in trading. It's very strange. I mean, people know it when they make the mistake themselves, when they hit buy and sell of, instead of sell on their option trade. I've had people tell me it made them want to throw up and they just didn't. I mean, these are people that trade in their own accounts on a day-to-day -day basis and they hit the wrong button and it cost them 
thousands of dollars because they clicked the button at the wrong time or the wrong button. That happens in the professional world too. Um, and there's lots of, you can look up when have big traders. There's the whale trade errors where there's way too many zeros on the end of it. It's caused big, big market moves. Um, and I think I've probably answered that question. You look yeah. pregnant with more subjects. So please. I want to change. Yeah, I do please. want to change the subject. There's a couple of things that I think are important to get out there. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the economy that love to talk to at length. But now let's talk about something practical for a minute. I read several reports that there's a significant increase in non-exchange traded, exchange traded funds. Non-exchange traded, exchange traded. Wait a minute. An ETF. That would be an, an, an EETF. Yeah. An, an ETF, an exchange traded fund. We're a little caught. We're certainly cautious about those to begin with. We prefer regular mutual funds. The difference, there's a lot of differences, but one of the primary differences between an exchange-traded fund and a regular mutual fund is a regular mutual fund, if you go to sell or buy, it's whatever the price is of the underlying securities in the fund at the end of the day. And it's plus or minus any during, commissions that are being paid. Right. But but that's the underlying NAV of the fund. Net asset value. Is so you have a predictability and a stability. And a certainty about something that's happening there. Now, exchange-traded funds... Wait, and that has to do at the end of the day. Right. Okay. At the exchange-traded funds are traded during the day. You All sell throughout. one, someone buys one, theoretically, on, for example, the New York Stock Exchange, if that's where it's listed. What we're seeing is a lot of... Approach the majority of funds at one point recently. Exchange-traded funds that are being traded off the exchange. Now, here's the problem with that. <laughs> there's only one. I can I can start down dozens. There's there's a whole host of problems, not the least of which is it is non-transparent. You don't know that you got the best price. And somebody, there's a spread between the buy and the sell on those. That's where the broker that does the buying and the selling makes money. And you don't know what it was. It is it is completely in many cases non-transparent. So one of the things, and I realize this takes a degree of sophistication if you're going to buy an ETF to know where it's being bought and when you go to sell it, where it's going to be sold. Let me, let me give an example. I'll give a couple of examples, but uh, no, I'll just give one. Uh, Robin Hood has, uh, doesn't trade on the exchange. Robin Hood is a, is a firm that trades stocks, but they don't have a seat on the exchange. They have to go to someone else to trade their stocks. Um, right now they're going to Citadel, which is a hedge fund. Uh, and Citadel is buying and selling for them. And sometimes they're holding as a market maker, a bunch of stuff. They might own a bunch of ETF. And if you're in Robinhood and you go to buy ETF, you may not be buying it on the exchange. You might be buying it directly from Citadel. And you don't know what the spread on that was. And and this is this is a crucial point. Now, there have not been any widespread accusations of wrongdoing, although there have been some <laughs> smells that smelled like wrongdoing. The, the SEC has fined hundreds of millions of dollars to Robin Hood, <laughs> that, who did not admit wrongdoing, but still paid hundreds okay. of millions of dollars. Here's, here's my point. Robin Hood has a fundamental conflict of interest if you are trading an ETF, not Robin Hood, but Citadel, for example, has a fundamental conflict of interest because they may be on the other side of that trade. Yeah. 
So you, there's a lot of protections. We're talking about busted trades. There's a lot of protections on the New York Stock Exchange or even on the NASDAQ Exchange or the American Stock Exchange. There are protections within the rules of the exchange so that you get treated fairly and are made whole if somebody screws up. That is not necessarily true elsewhere. Now, that's a fair warning. And I got another one. Yeah. Inside 401ks and other similar tax-deferred retirement plans, there's something new through, due to some changes in rules from the uh, in Congress's acts and the uh, uh, and, and, and the Labor Department. And, and I'm going to have to say, by new, he means within the last decade because no, no, he's no, been very new. Well. What? Go ahead. I'm talking. About they're they're going to be allowed, and they are allowed now, and they're doing it to put fixed annuities inside a 401k. Yeah. Now, that is very me, new. Very new. Let me explain what's wrong with that. When you get done at your company with your 401k and you want to go about your life somewhere else, you have the right to do what's called a rollover. You move it to an individual retirement account. What you do with it in the individual retirement account is your business. It is your right to do whatever you want to do with it. It is your responsibility as an individual to figure out what's going on or to hire somebody or pay somebody in some way. To assist you. I won't go into all the nuances of that, and there are a lot. If you put your money into a fixed annuity in your 401k, and people apparently, there's some indication this is that people want to do this, and you decide that I've got, well, let's, let's use an example. Let's say you have a million dollars in your 401k and you're ready to retire, and you say, okay, uh, I want a reasonable rate of return from this, which has been shown historically and by a lot of academic studies to be around 4% plus inflation each year. Okay, you with me now? 4% plus inflation. That means you, you this is, there's no hard law that says this is going to work. It's just many studies have indicated this is reasonable. So you're now taking out $40,000 a year. And let's just say we have 2% inflation each year. You can theoretically, and this is the academic studies in history again, not the future, take your 4% and raise it by whatever inflation is each year. And there right now aren't any time periods where if you started doing that at the worst possible time, you would run out of money if you have a well-balanced portfolio. And I won't define what a real well-balanced portfolio is. It gets a little complex here. But let, let me just leave it at that. What would happen if you decided to use a fixed annuity when you retired rather than rolling over your IRA in rolling it over into an IRA and determining what you want to do with, say, buying a diversified set of investments or something. Well, in many cases, the annuity company will promise you more than 4%. So if you say you go to, let's say you're looking at rolling it over and you go to an investment advisor or a broker or something, and they think they say a 4% withdrawal is reasonable, let's take 4%. And you check with the fixed annuity company that is now sponsored inside of your 401k and they say, we'll give you 5 0.5%. We'll give you 5%. We'll give you 5.5%. Well, instantly your thought is, whoa, 5.5% is better than 4%. So let's go. Here's the problem. Whatever dollar amount you're getting when you retire is going to stay the same for the rest of your life. Let me say that again. Whatever dollar, now this is the normal fixed annuity. There, there may be bells and whistles that come along, but this is the key. So you get 5.5% instead of 4. The problem is there's no adjustments for inflation. That's number one problem. You if inf you say, well, inflation's been low. And that was the argument when they put them in. Inflation's so low, it doesn't make any difference. Oh, yes, it does make a difference. 
I have lived through high inflation and watch what happened to people in the Texas teachers retirement system who had a fixed number of dollars coming in and go back to work because that fixed number of dollars didn't buy a lot. And it's liable that it just got through happening, folks. Admittedly, the annuities weren't in there last year, but let's say a year or two ago, uh, you had you retired and your 401k had a fixed annuity and you put it in there. You're now getting in, and you put it into a fixed annuity as you retired rather than putting it into an individual retirement account and managing it or having someone manage it. You would now be getting about 13% less in buying power than when you retired two years ago. Now, let's go on. That, the that's, other a, problem that's a fair is, warning, too. The other problem is when you put it into that fixed annuity, it's the XYZ insurance company and they guarantee your income. Sure, it's guaranteed income. What happens if the XYZ or whatever insurance company becomes insolvent? Which happens, folks. What happens to your money? You won't find a good answer to that one. Uh, Well, there's a state guarantee fund. Well, the problem with the state guarantee fund is they're like the state guarantee funds that back banks when I first started 40 years ago. The problem with the state guarantee funds backing state banks is sometimes when they would go under, the state guarantee fund would run out of money and you wouldn't get all your money back. And I have been at this a long time. I've been at this 40 years now. And I, when I first started off, I was routinely seeing people in the 1980s who'd had their retirements in a fixed annuity with an insurance company because their pension had rolled over in, into or not had converted into a, a fixed annuity purchased by their company that they worked for. And the company went under. And in many cases, these people got back like 30 cents on the dollar. Sometimes they didn't get their money back for 10 or 15 years. But when they finally got it, it was 30 cents on the dollar or 40 cents on the dollar. Do I know for a fact that's going to happen again? No, but it has happened. And despite the fact we had a horrific collapse of insurance companies 40 years ago, and why did we have the, the, the lobbyists from the state insurance boards and from the insurance companies prevented the federal government from, from forming an agency like the FDIC or the SIPC for stocks or the company, there, there is a pension benefit guarantee fund. Um, it's like the SIPC and the FDIC. But, but not so, at all, really. <laughs> but not. But there is no agency of the United States government or formed by the United States government that backs fixed annuities. So you and the, you are an unsecured creditor of the fixed annuity company, and that now, is a big risk. I'm going to jump in here and, and say some important things. You should research FDIC and SIPC and the Pension Guarantee uh, Trust Company. Pension Benefits Guarantee pension, Fund. Yeah. Yes, the Pension Benefit Guarantees Fund. Research them to see what their coverage is. They, they're not similar to each other, except that they are entities there to help in the event of loss. They right. cover very, very, very different things. So just because we're mentioning them in the same sentence, don't feel like they're overly related to each other. They're different kinds of insurance, and they don't have a whole lot of relationship to each other, except they're there to to, to help in the event of malfeasance-type losses. If The bottom line to all of those companies is the same thing. If the company, the, the person or the, the company that is holding your money goes under, there is some degree of federal backing to give you money back. Yeah, we can't, we, we can't go into enough detail on here, on the air, without boring the this not out of everybody sure. doing it. I, what, what I, we I, what we need to make sure you understand when we talk about those 
aspects of, of a marketplace, whether it's a bank or the stock exchange or so on, it's really important to thoroughly understand that coverage. And it's not easy. FDIC has all kinds of weird stuff about how your account's registered and the SIPC is only covering, is covering you under completely different circumstances. Yes, and I, I, I got that. And the, the important, there's a secondary important element to that, though. The FDIC examines banks. The SIPC examines broker-dealers. The PBGIC, Pension Benefit, Guarantee, guarantee in anyway, corporation corporation yeah um income corporation examines pension funds and they have to meet certain regulatory requirements or they can't function there is no federal agency that examines insurance companies it's strictly the states and if you don't live in the state where that insurance company is domiciled you may not have any coverage at all no. last but not least in no. most states let me throw one other thing in there Okay, I know you may want to I'm, claw I'm, back some of the things. I yeah, said, what, I want, what I'm saying I say is something. This this is not enough information to be really balanced, and we can't give okay. you enough information on it. Uh, so, so you really need to well, thoroughly look into it. Here, I want to say one thing that I can say unequivocally: I have examined the the state guarantee funds of many states. They're what they say and what they say they will cover. What they don't cover is what are called group annuities. Most pension annuities that are purchased by a company to fund their pensions when people retire are group annuities. And they're not even covered by the state guarantee funds in every case I've ever seen. So just, I want you to be very cautious. And here's the bottom line to it. We have talked in the past about non-traded real estate investment trusts, non-traded securities, non-traded items. When you say this is alternates, alts, and non-traded this and non-traded that. And they hold their value when everything else is moving. They don't necessarily. They just look like they do because nobody's buying or selling it. And the underlying value, the underlying value of your fixed annuity that you purchase from a insurance company is based on the value of the portfolio of stocks and bonds or real estate or forests or whatever held by that insurance company. You just don't see the fluctuation. And we've been following a nice little cycle of things that nobody thought would ever happen again happening. And it's going to have, I am confident, not certain, that at some point as interest rates rise, because that's what triggered the fall, the, the collapse of insurance companies in the 1980s, rising interest rates, because these insurance companies hold large bond portfolios. Bond portfolio values fall as interest rates rise. As interest rates rise, people who have surrenderable annuities look at the interest rate. Look at the interest rate being paid in their guaranteed fixed their guaranteed position at a uh, insurance company, and they say, "Whoa, I can get more in a money market fund than I was getting at the insurance company." And they surrender. In other words, they liquidate and they go away. And when they do that, the insurance company has to sell bonds at a loss to cover that liquidation. And that's how they got in trouble. I don't see anything out there that's preventing that from happening right now. Interest rates are rising again for the first time in 40 years. And I think that would not be surprised in the next several years to start seeing annuity insurance companies get into financial trouble. We'll have to see. There's no, there's no certainty about anything. Anytime that you get into something that you that is not traded, is not visible, is not transparent, you are to, to avoid market risk. 
you are taking another risk and you really need to know what risk you're taking before you get into it. As a parallel to that, just as an easy way of looking at this, if you've ever been around a small business owner versus someone working at a corporation, small business owner, people would say, well, that's scarier. You don't know what you're going to get paid month to month. You don't even know if people are going to do business with you next month. So as a, as a small business owner, that seems like you're taking a lot of risk. The thing is that as we've seen recently with all the big tech layoffs, a corporation might not get paid for something for a few months too. And they respond to that by laying people off. You get this kind of feeling like you've got extra stability because you're with a big corporation and you're not taking as much risk. But the reality is that you just don't see the risk. It doesn't necessarily mean the corporation's bad. So long as you research the corporation. Uh, and what we're saying is the same when it comes to anything involving any kind of guarantee or any kind of hidden methodology that doesn't expose you to the risk that you're actually being exposed to. You don't know about it. It, it exposes you to the risk. It just doesn't inform you of the risk right. that you're being exposed to. Because somebody else has some degree of insurance on it or whatever. But I, I would, you know, there, there's other times in history not that long ago, that people got caught up in that same concept of you've got this insurance-backed, collateral-backed bond, a mortgage backed by a house that you could foreclose on. It's got mortgage insurance on it given by big rating agencies. It's been told it's a it's the highest credit rating available, but when you dug down into the thing, you found a bunch of really bad stuff with a huge amount of insurance. And I would recommend that you look back at the global financial crisis, the Great Recession. It was an insurance-based issue. AIG was the first company that had that really ran into problems uh, after, uh, I mean, a series of Bear Stearns and uh, Lehman Brothers. They were all insurance-based applications where they were buying insurance on things and using the insurance to say the credit rating is better and then mixing it up and adding some more bad stuff and just adding more insurance on top of it. You have to dig down into what you're buying. Anytime somebody says this is high credit and high interest, it doesn't make sense. When somebody says this is going to give you stability across the marketplace, that you don't see stability in regularly, it doesn't make sense. Understand what that stability is coming from and what the cost is, what the risks are. And there's a parallel here. There's a big parallel that I see very, very clearly because I've been at this so long. And that is in the late 70s, going into the early 80s, as interest rates started to rise and they rose suddenly and dramatically in a short period of time. And if you've been following the interest rate rises that have gone on in 2022, you wait, can wait literally go... Interest rates are up? When, when did that uh, Yeah, 98%. How, how did that happen? Uh, you go back 40 years, and it happened then, too. Not quite as right fast. As, right <laughs> as, as that occurred, there was a rush of non-traded, what we would today call alts, being sold. People were being sold investments that were stable and sure things and guarantees in real estate, in oil and gas, in whatever was out there that were not traded on the market, not traded on the stock market. And the people were proud of the fact they were not traded on the stock market. Why? Because we had just come out of the 1980-82 recessions where the market dropped a lot in a relatively short period of time. 
and people were scared of the market. They were retiring and they bought things that didn't trade. They didn't see the fluctuations in value day to day or month to month or year to year. And they were just gobbling those things up. And over the years, I have witnessed a lot of people who are very, very unhappy that they did that because it took them many years to get any money back. Some of them got no money back at all. And when they finally got money back, it was only a minority percentage of what they initially invested. We're going back into that. I see a lot about alternatives. I have, I'm, I notice alternative investments, they're called now. And I am getting advertisements on a regular basis that try to talk us into suggesting to our clients to buy into these, quote, alts. There's a great deal of danger there, folks. When you get away from a regular exchange, which is, we talk about busted trades and so on, a regulated exchange. And when you get away from transparency, you get away from liquidity. People can make a lot of promises about what's going on in there and you won't have any way of figuring out whether it's really happening until it blows up. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a really, really, really easy to follow example of that in the crypto world where you have these, our, our whatever fill in the blank is safe. It will keep up with inflation. It's better than the dollar. It's all the things. And the country's going, oh, we're going to make that our currency. Well, that's a bad decision. It didn't work very well. Uh, why? Because it's not a regulated exchange. You can't know who's buying from whom. And that's, we've talked about this over, over the last five years repeatedly on the big crypto exchanges. A lot of the trading volume, when how many things are being bought and sold in a given day, are what's called wash sales, which are illegal in a, in a regulated exchange where you would buy from yourself, essentially. Buy from yourself to show that there's trading occurring and even buy from yourself for more money than it's worth. So if you have money over in one account and you buy from another account that, and it looks like you just made a trade and caused the market to go up, well, guess what? In, in a regulated exchange, that's called market manipulation and you can go to jail. It is the majority of trades that took place in many of the major uh, crypto exchanges in 2022. The majority of trades were illegal trades in another exchange, not illegal in the crypto world, according to them. Well, the SEC is coming in and saying, I don't care if this isn't a security until you start exchanging it like this. As soon as it's backed by a third party that is incorporating some value into it, including the person you're buying it from, it becomes a security. And even if it were a piece of dirt, that you're hyping up and changing the price of, that's still illegal. You can't commit fraud and fake trades to cause the price to change when it really didn't so that you can sell it to someone else. And all that is going to come home to roost. And what we're saying is anytime you get away from the regulated exchange, it doesn't matter if it's crypto or alts or, or real estate or real estate, you, each real estate trade doesn't have to follow the same exchange rules as a security. They're not necessarily even a federally regulated thing. It's, a, it's in a given state somewhere. Uh, you, you wanted to add to this. 
I want to add that also occurs not just in crypto. It commonly occurs in real estate investment trusts and yeah. real estate investments. Yeah. Uh, the properties are being purchased at a certain price and they'll advertise that and they're being sold at a higher price in the existing investments and they're talking about how much profit they're making. Sometimes they're I dug being into bought those. by the same company yeah. that owns that trust in another trust. I actually dug into it. And that's exactly what was happening. The company that's busy setting up this thing they want to sell to you is actually doing the buying and selling themselves to other elements of the same entity, making it look like they're turning a big profit when in fact they're not turning any profit at all. They're turning a loss. And that under generally accepted accounting practices in a security is, is not correct. It is absolutely in violation of GAAP. Uh, this is why this is what occurred at Enron, and the ex generally accepted accounting practices changed because nobody thought you would make a loan to a subsidiary company, charge it a high interest rate, and call that prop call that profit because it's not profit. You're charging interest to yourself. Uh, even the government doesn't call it profit when it's charging itself interest because it doesn't actually charge itself the interest that it says it's charging. <sighs> How's that for a mouthful? So It's going on. And it, the bottom line to it again, as soon as you get away from something that's transparent, that is traded on uh, a regular regulated exchange or is regulated clearly under federal law, you are taking a huge risk. And the worst part thing about the worst thing about that risk is you have no clue what it is. Now, at this point, some of the listeners out there are likely saying, too little, too late. Why didn't you warn us about this in 2021 or 2020? I would recommend that you go back and listen to the podcast <laughs> or the radio because we were talking about it at the time. At the, at the height of the mania, we were saying, this is the height of a mania. Uh, it has all the bookmarks that say this part right here is about to lead to this chapter, and we've read that chapter before, and you don't want to be in the drama. Let's get away and be a spectator. Um, yeah, and it's, unfortunately, it's not a drama unless there are people participating. Um, sadly. And I, I really have a strong suspicion there's going to be some horror stories certainly within the next decade about people who lost a lot of money someplace where they thought they were completely safe. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> I think you can say that about in every single decade, you can say there's going to be a lot of horror stories about people losing money in places they thought they were safe. Do your due diligence. If someone is proclaiming a high rate of return and safety in the same sentence, that's your first red flag because safety doesn't come with high returns. It doesn't. That's not how you stay safe. Anybody that puts the two together, it doesn't matter what they're talking about. It's a red flag. <laughs> be careful. And it should be all you need to stop and say no more of that. And we're out of time for this week. It's exciting times that we're living in and all of the meanings of that word where we are optimistic. If you would like to talk to us uh, off the air, you can reach us uh, with voicemail locally at 254-947-1111 or you can go toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can find our newsletters going back a long ways, our radio programs going back a long ways. Sign up for our newsletter there. It's free. comes every Friday. 
Uh, you can go uh, uh, look at what we've said in the past. Contact us directly through the contact form or emails at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great rest of your weekend.